0: What he wants them to see is that the future belongs to the church. Now, we we don't think like that these days. But there's all this doom and gloom about the church. Don't you believe it? The future belongs
1: to the church. Welcome to The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Our series is called the heavenly places. Today, moving into the first chapter of Ephesians, verses 15 through 23, in a study we're calling The Eyes of Your Heart. Enlightened, Josh Moody is senior pastor of College Church. It's located about 30 miles west of the city of Chicago, and we're glad you're joining us for our study today. Josh, our opener lands in that it's not hard to find folks lining up the funeral procession for the church, at least hmm. here in the States. Uh, according to our passage today, though, perhaps a bit premature.
0: Yeah, Jesus' promise, isn't it, to... Grow the church, shall build the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So nothing else will either. Hmm. And uh, we can take confidence in that, those of us who believe in Jesus, and be sure that his purpose for his people will stand.
1: Not only is the church not dead, there's some really important things we're going to learn about it from the Apostle Paul. Let's get to it. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, the book of Ephesians. Here's Josh.
0: I ask you then to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians as uh, we continue our series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We've come to chapter 1 and we'll be looking this morning at verses 15 to 23 and we'll be uh, continuing that series through the Easter week itself. Each of these passages have uh, relevance to Easter but of course we'll study them on their own merits as well from the context and the application from God's word. So Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, I'll read to us from verse 15 until verse 23. Let's hear God's word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, May give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? But also in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now let's pray as we come now to God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, God, we thank you for your word. We pray, uh, as Paul is praying here, that indeed the eyes of our hearts would be open to see what it is that you want to teach us here. We thank you, Lord, for this week. We pray it would be a significant one in all of our lives. We thank you for the children and their presence with us in the service so far. And again, we ask, Lord, that as the Apostle Paul prayed, we pray that the eyes of our heart would be open to see What it is that you're teaching us here in your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. In 2015, the BBC conducted an unusual experiment. They got together a group of wannabe Adele singers, Adele being, of course, the famous singer. and uh, had a competition to see who could sound most like Adele, which of course is not an easy thing to do, given that she has the most extraordinary voice. Some say that I should have gone into that competition and I might have won. <laughs> uh, but those who have heard me sing would know that I was joking. So, But what made this competition rather unusual was that the BBC also... Invited Adele herself to participate. Undercover. In disguise. Uh, She did her hair differently. She wore clothes that were not rock star clothes or whatever she normally wears. It was different. In fact, they went so far as to give her a fake nose, a prosthetic nose. You can can see it on YouTube. So the, the different... Uh, singers uh, do their bit, and then they sit down the front, and then the next singer comes on, who, unknown to them, undercover, is Adele herself. And she comes onto the platform, and she sort of plays it up, and looks very nervous, you know, and sort of, and she tries to sing. So well, let's let's start again. And then she enters into one of her famous songs and starts to sing it like Adele, and all the other people and the, the the other contestants on the front. You see their faces, they sort of and then they look at each other and go, It's her. Many of the things about the church, the true reality of the church is for many people undercover in disguise. And the Apostle Paul here is praying, He is, if you've been following us along in our series, the whole point of the letter to the Ephesians is to encourage this network of churches to which he's writing. He planted the church through a ministry in the Hall of Tyrannus. He did these daily lectures and the word of God went out through to the whole province of Asia so he knew some of the Christians but not others because there was a whole network of churches planted throughout that area. And he's writing to Ephesus and this network of churches. Uh, to encourage them that God has heavenly power in the heavenly places. The ongoing theme throughout the letter is a letter of encouragement. As we saw last week, he encouraged them, first of all, that God has a purpose to bless us, a sovereign purpose to bless us with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, this sovereign purpose. And now, because of that, he says, for this reason, namely, because God has His sovereign purpose to bless us, and he says, "Because I've heard of your faith and love, because there are some that he hadn't met in person, though some he had he'd heard that they really were part of this blessing that God had given. They, they had faith, they believed, and they had love for all the saints, that is, for all the other Christians. There was evidence that they were real Christians. What's the evidence that someone's a real Christian? They love the church. They had faith and the love for all the saints. They're real Christians. They're part of God's sovereign purpose to bless His people. On account of this, He's praying what he's praying is that the eyes of their hearts would be opened. Their heart means the, the central part of the personality in biblical language, not just the emotions, not just the sentiment, but the thinking and the feeling and the willing. The, the central heart of who a person is would be open to see. He, he's praying that the, the Father of all glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of him. Don't get the theologians amongst, don't get tripped up by that word revelation. Paul was in praying that they'd have a new revelation. What he's praying is that they would be illuminated. They would see, as he says, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. And then he lists three things he wants them to know, each introduced by the word what, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, then what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and then what is the immeasurable greatness of his power all of which culminates, verse 22, in the church. He gave him his head over all things to the church. The apostle Paul is praying that they would see what otherwise is undercover. What is the hope? What are the riches? And what is the power of the church? So let's look at those three things
1: together. Treasure hunting in the passage. Specifics in just a moment. But first, we want to thank those of you who have partnered with us. God-Centered Life is completely listener-supported, and some have stepped up and said, we want to keep this endeavor going. To you, we say a huge thank you. We hope you're getting benefit. We know others are getting benefit on your behalf. So for them, we say thank you. To find out more, you can go to GodCenteredLife.org back into Ephesians. Here's Josh. First of all, what is
0: the hope? Uh, Verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And as I say, you can see from the end of it, this culminates in in the church and in fact this theme of the hope to which he's called you as as christians in the church he picks up again later in the letter you look at uh, chapter four this this theme of the church is one of the the important sub-themes of the letter chapter four he says this verse one i therefore a prisoner of the lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called what is that calling while with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bury one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit. This is the body of Christ, the church. And he talks then about the, uh, the gifts that was given to the church and the, and, and the work of the church from which the whole body, uh, verse 16 of chapter 4, uh, joined together and works and who is the head under Christ. So when he, he's praying now, and of course he then teaches throughout the letter about this, this hope. What is the hope to which he has called you as the church? To put it in kind of contemporary terms, what he wants them to see is that the future belongs to the church. Now, we, we don't think like that these days. Of course, it would have been hard for them too with all the power of Rome and as we saw you know, the, the goddess Artemis with, the, with her the, one of the seven wonders of the world and all this around them. The, the idea that this local church, these, this network of churches was the future would have seemed extraordinary and yet, of course, so it proved. In our day, also, we don't tend to think like that. We, we, there's all this doom and gloom about the church, don't you believe it? The future belongs to the church. In the high Middle Ages, in the 13th century, a Christian leader called Humber of the Romans wrote saying, these days hardly anyone goes to church No one listens to sermons, and they're completely ignorant of the basics of Christian doctrine. And then came the Reformation. In 1606, a Christian leader called Nicholas Bound said the people of his day were were totally ignorant of, of biblical themes. In fact, he said if you tell them a story from the Bible, they look at you as if it's the most surprising myth and legend. They'd never even heard of it. He said, they are far more familiar with Robin Hood than the stories of the Bible. And then came the Puritan resurgence. In 1730, the uh, great atheistic philosophical leader, Montesquieu, said that no one is any more, in any way, interested in religion. In fact, if you mention religion, people just laugh. 1730, and then came the Great Awakening. Don't you believe the stories of doom and gloom? Actually, the true church is thriving. There have been studies done on this uh, that that show this. A study that came out of Indiana University that showed that actually the kind of religion that's on decline is what they called moderate religion. But intense religion, which they defined as evangelicalism or Bible teaching or passion, here we are in Passion Week, that's at least holding its own, if not, I would say, on the, on the up. Even in the West, certainly, or around the world, for sure. In fact, another study that came out of our own state, a university in our own state, Illinois, uh, looked at the 2020 US census data and found that actually non-denominational Bible teaching churches since from 2010 to 2020 had grown in attendance by, in America By 6.5 million. Not everything that calls itself a church grows, certainly. But a real church, a Bible teaching church, a gospel church. I want you to see, I want you to grasp, I want the eyes of your heart to be illuminated that you would see what is the hope to which you've been called. The future belongs to the church. The future doesn't belong to the tech companies. The future doesn't belong to whoever masters, whatever it is, chat GPT or the latest AI technology. The future is is the church. I want you to see that, says the Apostle Paul. And then second he says, I want you to see what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now we've got to look carefully what he writes there because we would think that he's, if you don't look closely at the text, your mind will think that he's saying, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? But he doesn't say that. He says, what are the riches of his inheritance Glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, certainly, uh, the apostle has already taught uh, the Ephesians and that network of churches that Christians, too, have an inheritance. You, you may remember that from earlier in chapter 1, uh, verse 11. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Yes, we Christians have an inheritance, too. And he says the same thing in verse 14 of chapter 1. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise for his glory, so that we who are Christians also have an inheritance. But here, as he's praying, he's saying something different. He wants our eyes to be open not only to what is the hope that the future belongs to the church, but what are the riches of his, namely, God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Uh, Paul is playing on a, a fairly common theme in the Old Testament here. You can read about it in Deuteronomy uh, 28 verse 9 or uh, Psalm 28 verse 9, but it's, it's all over the Old Testament. That God's inheritance is his people. That his prized possession is his people. It's an extraordinary thought. And I want, Paul's saying, I want, I'm praying that the Lord will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation to open the eyes of your heart so that you might see what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, in the church. I, I was interested to discover that in 2018, one online article claimed that Jeff Bezos, however you pronounce his last name, but the guy who runs Amazon, in 2018, this article said that Jeff Bezos was the, the richest person who's ever existed. I think there's been something of a stock market change since then. But anyway, in 2018, maybe he still is the richest person. I don't know. But in 2018, this article claimed he was the richest person who ever existed. He had $120 billion or something like that. But then another economist uh, got working on that and said, well, actually, if you go back to the Gilded Age and you take into account inflation and the change in economic realities and all that, then John D. Rockefeller actually, in in contemporary dollars, uh, would have um, had three times what Jeff Bezos had $360 billion, uh, John D. Rockefeller in contemporary terms in 2018, and that got me thinking. What about Genghis Khan? How much did he own? The height of the Mongol Empire, or um, Alexander the Great, or Julius Caesar? Caesar? And here Paul is saying that the richest person in the whole universe, by definition, the one who literally owns it all, his prized possession is the church. We are the most valuable commodity according to God, in the whole universe. Uh, The um, movie It's a Wonderful Life illustrates this, I think, uh, well towards the end of the movie when the angel says to the protagonist when he's finally been rescued from bankruptcy and says, he who has friends, he who is no failure who has friends. Christian, be encouraged. You look at your bank balance, you think it's not as big as it was last year. Or I, I'm, in, I'm in difficulty. If you are a part of a church, you are a part of the most valuable commodity in the universe according to the richest person in the universe by definition. God who owns it all. I want you to see that, says the Apostle Paul. I want you to see that the future belongs to the church, not to tech companies. I want you to see that the richest company you could ever be a part of is the local church. Therefore, of course, be encouraged if you're a part of it. If you're not a part of it, get to be a part of it. What is the hope? What are the riches of his
1: glorious inheritance in the saints, in the church? That's Josh Moody, and this is The God-Centered Life. Those studies you referenced, Josh, those were interesting. Nominal was the label given to churches on the decline, but evidence seen for intense, (laughs) in their term, churches uh, as actually growing. So is it valid to look at growth or decline as a way to assess that church's focus? It's a tricky one, isn't
0: it? I've always been a little hesitant to buy into the numbers game. Hmm. Uh, Some people— used to think that churches if they're bigger and growing must be healthy and and sadly that isn't always the case you can have a flash in the pan something grows very fast it ends up being pretty pretty much more like a cancerous growth than healthy growth on the Mm -hmm. other hand you can come across churches that are pretty small that are actually very healthy some of it's contextual if you live in a village of a thousand people and you have 200 people going to the church well that's pretty good on the other hand you have one church in new york city and only only 200 people going to that's less of a good percentage so it's But there does need to be fruit. I think that we can say that. And, of course, the fruit primarily of character. And we trust uh, numerical growth. We do want to see many people come to Jesus.
1: Hmm. I also appreciated the statement that God's inheritance is... Us, the church. Wow, that's something to chew on. So uh, it kind of raises the bar for the importance of participating in that church, doesn't it? Oh,
0: yeah, it does, (laughs) doesn't it? Let's, Let's get to church people, whether it's here in the Chicago area or whether somewhere else. If there's a church nearby, Let's crawl over broken glass and get to church
1: if necessary. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that, Josh. Well, we would love to hear from you. Uh, Tina has written us from Georgia. She's listening to New Life Radio 90.7 down there. And uh, she says that she sits with a patient until late evening and then has to drive an hour home three nights a week. And what she does is she turns on the radio and listens to the God centered life. Thanks so much for writing us. appreciate that. Whatever your position is, however you're interfacing with these studies, we'd love to hear about that as well. You can connect with us via our website, GodCenteredLife.org. That's also where you can sign up for a devotional. This devotional comes to you via email, but wait, it's more than just a devotional. It's also your link to that day's study and other resources there as well. Josh writes this devotional and uh, it'll show up in your inbox and then you can link to the study as well. Guidecenteredlife.org. So that and we also have an app. You can find that at the app store that best matches your mobile device. We hope you'll take advantage of these resources. Next time we get together, we're asking the question uh, who's in charge here? No Rome. You are not the
0: great power. There is a greater power. Uh, No, uh, the greatest power in the universe is not in Washington, D.C. It's not in the tech companies, and it's not the alphabetic soup of Google, Amazon, and Facebook, whatever else it is.
1: We'll wrestle with who's really in charge when we get together next time. Continuing our look at the book of Ephesians, GodCenteredLife.org, resources for you. And this is your invitation to join us around God's Word right here at The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody.